title of this sermon is Prayer. Mark 11, 22 through 25. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart but believes that what they say will happen, it'll be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it'll be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may also forgive your sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Steve. We are working our way through um, the Gospel of Mark, one of the four Gospels that begins the New Testament, uh, Matthew, Mark, uh, Luke, and John. And they're basically records of Jesus' life and ministry, uh, what he said, what he did, how he interacted with people. Um, we're moving towards the end of the Gospel now. We're in chapter 11 out of 16 chapters. And uh, Mark is all about how Jesus began his ministry, gathered his disciples, revealed himself to Israel. But then when he was confessed as the Messiah, when uh, Peter acknowledges that he is the Christ, Christ, Messiah, both mean anointed one of God, he turns, and as we've seen, he marches, really a death march, towards Jerusalem, where he's going to go to the cross. A passage here begins, have faith in God, Jesus answered. What is he answering to? Well, if you recall last week, we saw how Jesus had gone into the temple in Jerusalem. But before he went in there, he wraps his visit up in a, a sort of a, not so much a parable as a, um, a metaphor or an image. There is a fig tree. Uh, fig trees represent Israel in the Old Testament. And he curses the fig tree, goes into Jerusalem, and when he comes out, Peter sees the fig tree and recognizes that it's dead, that it has withered. And he comments on the fact, look, Lord, the fig tree has withered. And this is Jesus' response to Peter seeing the withered fig tree. What is this answer? Why is Jesus answering this way? Well, the cursed fig tree represented or symbolized the fact that Israel, Jerusalem, the temple, had stopped bearing spiritual fruit. If you read the Old Testament, Israel was created, the nation of Israel, God's people, were created to be a blessing to the world, to witness God to the entire world, to be a place of prayer for the world. And instead of doing that, they had turned inward. They'd become all about personal purity, about ritual, about dead legalism. The light of Israel, the light of Jerusalem, the light of the temple had gone dark. Uh, the spiritual life had left it. It had withered into something that was not of God. And this is a tragedy. This was a tragedy. God's place, God's temple, God's house of prayer, the place, Jerusalem, where heaven and earth meet. Remember, God was in the ark. Uh, he was above the ark in the temple. Jerusalem was the meeting place between human beings and God. 
that it all ended. The national project of Israel, of the Jewish people, had failed. Where can you now go to find God? Where is God? Where is hope? Where can you put your faith? Where can you turn? Well, Jesus answers, and this is his answer to that question. Jerusalem has died, the temple is dead, the light has gone out, and have faith in God. Faith in God is God's answer to the end of the temple. So what does that mean? What does it mean to have faith? What is faith? It's one of those Christian jargon words that people just impose meanings on because good knows what, they've read a book or they've seen a movie or they've come from some different tradition. What does the word faith actually mean in Christian terms? Well, it's a Greek word, pistis, and it means literally to be persuaded, to come to trust, to have faith in somebody or something, to have confidence. The core meaning is divine persuasion, to be divinely persuaded of something. Faith is God's self-authenticating guarantee of who he is and what he will do. Faith is not something that we have on our own lights. It is not something that we generate or acquire. Faith is a gift from God, always received from him because of what God does. Paul puts it this way in Romans. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Or his letter to the church in Ephesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. Or his letter to the church in Galatia. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Faith is a gift from God. And therefore, that has implications. Faith is one element among other gifts. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. That means we will not always be faithful, just as we'll not always be loving or joyful or self-controlled. We will put our faith in other things apart from God. Amidst doubts and temptations, faith will be an option, will be an aspect of who we are. It is not all of what we are. And that's why faith and doubt always go together. It's why the Bible, if you read the Psalms, for example, the psalmist is always saying to his own heart, remember, have faith, trust God. 
It is a decision. It is a struggle. It is an aspect of becoming a Christian, that we increasingly put our faith in God. But there are always other things in our life that challenge us. You know, you sometimes meet loud, dogmatic people who claim to believe in God without any doubt or mystery, who claim to have all the answers. Typically, they're unwilling to listen to different points of view or other ideas that don't neatly fit into their belief system. Belief, in that sense, is less about faith in God than it is faith in their own understanding, their own knowledge, their own belief. That is not the faith that is being described here. Jesus says, have faith in God. Choose. Make a decision in your life that you're going to base your decisions on your faith as a Christian. When you're faced with challenges, you have a choice. Do you act out of faith in God, or do you act according to your own ideas and whims and inclination. Every decision in our life, we face that choice. Think of this image. I think this helps. Imagine yourself as a garden. Who knows what's going on in your head when you imagine yourself as a garden? By the way, a garden is a good image because a garden is the balance between wild nature and cultivated civility. So there you are, you're a garden, I'm a garden. And depending on our backgrounds and our upbringings, there might be some seriously weird and strange things growing in our garden. Think of your inner nature. Some things that are ugly, parts of the garden that are overgrown, prickly things, things that sting, things that make you sick, things that are scary, repellent, things that may stop you going to the bottom of your garden so you only live in a small part of who you are. That is the natural state of a human being. Wild, unkempt, the product of whatever our pasts have thrown at us. Strange fruits that are the, the winds of fate have blown into our lives. Some gardens, some of you, some of us, might be relatively pretty. Some are worse. Some are unbalanced. Some of us are absolute nightmares. We are jungles inside, jungles of darkness. That is the human condition without God, without faith, without a relationship with our Creator. And so a miracle comes along. God shows up the Holy Spirit, the gift of faith. And what does the Holy Spirit do? It claims part of our nature. It creates within our wild natures a holy space. That is a space within us cleared of ugliness, set apart by God for his purposes. That's what holy means, set apart by God. And that new space, that holy space, is where God's faithfulness lives and grows. Because it is the part of you 
that is now in relationship with God, that has faith in God, that connects you to God. By the way, you could call that part of you genuinely a garden, the Garden of Eden. It means literally, by the way, an enclosed garden created by God where God and man get together. So each one of you, if you have the Holy Spirit, each one of us, has within us a place claimed by God. Now it can start out very small. It might be the part of you that you don't go to very often. Maybe only on Sundays or at Christmas or at Easter. Maybe hardly at all for months or years or decades. But it is there because it is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. It is a gift of God, and God keeps his promises. The part of you that is faithful is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit and defended by the Holy Spirit, and it is now eternal. No matter what else that you do, say whatever happens to you, there will always be a place of you within you that is faithful, defended and guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. All right, that's all very interesting. But what has it got to do with what Jesus is saying? Well, think what he is saying here. The temple, Jerusalem, is dead. It is not anymore the place where you go to find God. The temple is empty. The sacrifices mean nothing. All the rituals of cleansing and preparation, fasting and prayer are irrelevant. The priests are no longer necessary as intermediaries when you go to meet God. Where do you meet God? In your garden, in your heart, the place of faith. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and, you, and it will be yours. You don't need to go to the temple. You don't need to go to the priests. You don't need to sacrifice. You just ask direct access to the power of God. And notice what Jesus says. Do not doubt in your heart. Now I said that faith and doubt go together. That is because faith is a spiritual gift. It is one aspect of who we are now, but we still have faith in many other things. You know, we have faith in our wealth, in our beauty, in our talents, our worth, our status, our achievements, our significance. There are many things in this world that we turn to to find our significance, that we put our faith in, that are going to make us happy. But the extent to which you turn to this place of faith, the extent to which you grow and cultivate your garden, that is to the extent with which doubt is removed from your life, where faith in God replaces other faiths. 
And we've done it today. Steve led us in in uh, confession. What is confession? Confession is identifying something in your life that is not of God. It is turning away from that thing back to God. That's what repentance means, to turn back. You can think of it as uprooting something in your life that is ugly. Repentance is removing the ugly things in your garden, the ugly parts of your garden, the poisonous things, the toxic things, the things that are destructive. Now, if you just remove it, if you just confess, something else could take its place, another bad habit, another destructive thing. And so part of Christian life is not just repenting, it is placing new things into your life. Things of God. Christian friends, ministries, prayer, worship. Goals in your life that are in line with God's purposes that advance his kingdom and not your own. And over time, your garden will grow. The part of you that is faithful will grow. And the part of you that is unfaithful will diminish. And that is the Christian life. You know, I told you this before. When I was in New Zealand and the church was there, we were in a prayer service, and this guy behind me, he said, thank you, Lord, for the gift of getting old. And I thought, you lunatic. There is nothing good about getting old. There is not a single thing I could think about. And then he said, because it enables me to see the ways you've been faithful in my life. And I thought, that is absolutely true. It is the only thing that I can think of that is good about getting old. That over time, as you see God being faithful, coming through, answering prayers, your own faith grows. You become more about the things of God because you know that you can trust him. Your faith in him and his faithfulness grows. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. What does that mean? Why haven't I got my yacht yet? Why don't I win the lottery? If we can just ask in prayer, why doesn't it work? Because God is not Father Christmas. Father Christmas just answers random pair requests or toy requests and gives people goodies. That's not who God is or what God is about. God is about the project of redeeming the world. And therefore, it's all about advancing his kingdom. There's a wonderful concept called kingdom prayer. Your prayers are not just random requests, or shouldn't be. As your garden grows, as you put more and more faith in God and his purposes, as your life aligns more and more with who he is, his ideals, his goals, his purposes, 
then your prayers are more and more about advancing his kingdom and not your own kingdom. Redeeming the world and not just about your selfish desires. Anything that you ask that is going to advance God's purposes in this world, anything that shines light into the darkness of this world, he will answer. He guarantees it. But that doesn't mean that you're going to win the lotto. By the way, when I first became a Christian, I've often thought, because when I came to the States, it was the first time that I'd experienced the lottery. And it seemed like a great idea, you know, a few bucks and you might win a million. But could there be any better way for the devil to screw up a Christian ministry than to let a person win a lottery? When you think about it, suddenly all your worldly desires, all my worldly desires, could, would, could be fulfilled. They'd all clamor. I wouldn't have to have faith in God anymore. I could do whatever I want. Run off and spend lottery money. It is to protect me that God hasn't let me win the lottery or give me that yacht to sail away or that red Ferrari or the Harley Davidson or whatever it is because he knows exactly what my part in advancing the kingdom can and should be and he's only going to answer prayers aligned with that purpose. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. So when you first read this, certainly when I first read it, it looks like a transaction. Your prayers are not getting answered. Well, you've got to forgive somebody, and then your prayer will be answered. But that's not the idea here. Why do we have this new access to God? Why can Jesus say, have faith in God? Well, the temple is gone. In fact, it's still gone. 2,000 years later, the temple has never been rebuilt. The only relationship with God that we can have is Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He is the reason for our faith. He is the one that cleared out that space within us. Have you ever wondered, by the way, why does Jesus wear a, a crown of thorns when he goes to the cross? When Adam and Eve exchanged their faith in God and God's wisdom for their faith in the serpent and his wisdom, they rebelled and they were kicked out of the garden. And God says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life and it will produce thorns and thistles for you. No more garden, just thorns and thistles. What does Jesus do? Jesus is Lord and King. The King returns to Israel. The temple, Jerusalem, are lifeless. So what does Jesus do? He goes to the cross to make an exchange. His life for death. His beauty for ashes. His crown of heaven for the earthly crown of thorns and thistles that is the inheritance of Adam and Eve. 
and he exchanges with us. And that's what creates our sacred space, a holy place within us, faith. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Faith, thanksgiving, forgiveness. And it's not just this singular transaction between us and God. God's forgiveness is forgiveness into a broken world. Not just one person, but everybody. You know, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he imagines a world that has been frozen solid, solid by evil, a world of endless cold and winter where everything is icy, hard, unmoving. But then when Aslan, the Christ figure, comes in to Narnia, spring shows up and everything begins to fall and to melt. That is the idea here. When Christ enters our world with forgiveness, forgiveness for sin, it's like a divine fire that begins to unfreeze everything. But not just us individually, the whole world. And so we are being invited here to become agents of God's forgiveness in the world. We are not just forgiven, we become a community of forgiving people, forgiving each other, agents of forgiveness in the world, instruments of God's forgiveness, witness to the world. Let me finish with this, this whole notion of forgiveness and restoration is captured in uh, one of St. Francis of Assisi's prayers. So as I read this prayer, think about your own prayer life. Think of the kinds of things that you pray for and ask for and see how big your garden is compared with St. Francis of Assisi. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace where there is hatred, let me so love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, help us to share the generosity of St. Francis's prayer. Make us instruments of peace. Show us how to forgive each other and witness forgiveness to a world that is filled with angry people screaming at each other. Lord, help us to be agents of light, of restoration, of forgiveness. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.